This is Dean Mathis, the Director of Capital Ministries, Michigan. I have chosen to entitle today's Bible study, which comes from Hebrews chapter 1, All Said and Done. The full phrase that we hear in conversation and in literature is when it's all said and done, and then a factual assertion will be made or written about something that is an accomplished fact or will soon be an accomplished fact based upon what has already all been said and done. And that would, to me, in my mind, form a pretty good summary of chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews. There are some things that have been said by God and done by the Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry on earth that sets the trajectory of everything that follows. And that includes the decisions we make in our personal lives. The letter to the Hebrews was written by a Jewish believer living outside the land or the Roman province of Palestine, outside of the territory of Judea and Jerusalem and all of that, who was an excellent Greek speaker who wrote to a group of believers living in Judea, which is the area south of Jerusalem, who were undergoing an intense period of persecution. And they were contemplating a decision, which we'll discuss later, that would put them in jeopardy was something that God had already warned the Jewish people about. And that something is what we addressed in last week's Bible study about the fact that the nation, as a body politic, had rejected Jesus as Messiah on the basis of their accusing him of being demon-possessed. And so that produced a judgment from Jesus, an anathema, which would find its fulfillment in what happened in 70 AD when the Romans came and destroyed the Jewish people, because they had revolted against Rome. But in the letter that we're going to be looking at, this time of persecution and pressure being put on Jewish believers who did accept Jesus as Messiah and find individual and personal salvation through faith in Him, that pressure was causing them to contemplate apostatizing or renouncing their Christian confession and going back into Judaism for a while and getting the pressure off, and then coming back later and reconfessing Christ and having that sin forgiven and go on down the road. And the writer to the Hebrews is writing them to say that when you do accept Christ as your Savior, it's a permanent action. Your sins are forgiven. But there are some sins that if you commit them that are in the nature of apostasy, for which there is a judgment in this life that has already been declared by God that will not be ameliorated by trusting in Christ for forgiveness of sins. In other words, that sin will be punished in this particular life. However, our souls will be secure through faith in Christ. And we'll get into the details of that as we go through the book. And he spends some time in the first part of this letter explaining to them that what they have in Christ is superior to what they had in Judaism. It's not a contrast between good and bad. It's a contrast between good which is what they had in Judaism, and better, which is what they now have in the complete work of Christ for their souls. Jesus is the fulfillment of what the law and the prophets had been talking about. So let's move into this particular chapter because that brings us to our theme of all said and done. It begins in verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. 
And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So in those four verses, the writer of the Hebrews summarizes a tremendous amount of biblical teaching. He points out the fact that the Bible, as we have it, is the product of God speaking through men. And he spoke through men in the past. He spoke to the fathers through men in the past called prophets. And he spoke in many different ways in many portions. Sometimes he used a vision. Sometimes he used law. Sometimes he used analogy. Sometimes he used historical events. But he accomplished all these communication purposes in order to let us know about himself. And the revelation was progressive and it was never final. But when Jesus showed up, God completely revealed what he was up to and what he was about in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then after Christ rose from the dead, he returned to heavenly glory and is seated at the right hand of God, which means he is God. He is co-equal with God and has a name that is higher than any other name. And he names a group of created beings that he is superior to, and that is the angels. Now, angels occupied a place of importance and honor in Jewish theology. But Jesus is higher than those angels. And then, as he moves forward through the chapter, he explains to show how Jesus is superior, first of all, to the angels, and in his majesty, and in his completed glory, and it is the fulfillment of all that God had sent him to do, and that he had done everything that is necessary for us to be made right with God, that they shouldn't lapse back into Judaism, but they should stay true and endure whatever persecutions they had because God would see them through. Verse 5, he says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today have I begotten you? And again, I'll be a father to him, and he'll be a son to me. So, in verse 5, he quotes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, which is a messianic psalm, and from Second Samuel 7.14, which is part of the covenant with David, to point out the fact that Jesus is superior to the angels in that he is himself God. He is himself the Son of God. The term begotten is not a term of how Jesus got to be. It is a legal term, which means that he has all the full rights of the firstborn. That's a legal phrase not a phrase of creation. Jesus always existed because he is God. He's the second person of the Godhead. Verse 6, he goes on to say, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, when Jesus came into the world and he has all the rights of the firstborn, when he was incarnated, he said this, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But, okay, so let's look at verse 7. Verse 7 quotes Psalm 104, verse 4. And what he points out there is that angels are servants. They are transitory in nature, but the Son is eternal. And the angels are here to serve the Son. They were created to serve the Son religiously. And then as he moves into verses 8 and 9, he quotes another Old Testament psalm. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God 
your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. So in quoting Psalm 45, verses 7 and 8, there are two things emphasized. First is the deity of the Son, and secondly is his authority in the Messianic kingdom to come. Jesus is God, therefore he is creator and master of all things, including the angels, and he has an eternal throne. So these are all superlatives that the writer to the Hebrews is quoting from the Old Testament about and reminding them of what the Old Testament said would happen in the glorification of the Messiah when he came and finished his work of redemption. Then in verses 10 through 12, he comes up with five superlatives about Jesus in relationship to angelic beings, quoting Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. All right, so let's read what he quotes here. And you, Lord, and the word there, Lord, is the word for Yahweh, or I am, the covenant name of God. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, saying, Jesus, or the Son of God, is the Lord that laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain, and they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle, you, and he's talking about Jesus here, the Son of God, and like a mantle, you will roll them up like a garment, they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. So what are the five things that he points out here? Well, first of all, he points out that Jesus is superior to the angels in basic existence. Jesus is God. It says, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth. Earlier in verse 9, it says, therefore, God, your God has anointed you. So in the mystery of the triunity, in the mystery of the Trinity, Jesus has always been. He is superior in basic existence. The angels were at some point prior to the creation of the universe we now inhabit, were created beings. They were created to serve God and the Son, and then later we'll find out they were created to serve us as servants in a religious way. So Jesus is superior in basic existence. Secondly, Jesus, or the Messiah, is the creator of the universe, and the angels are a part of that universe, and so Jesus created the universe. They didn't. Thirdly, he's sovereign over all the changes in the universe. Every change that has been made from the very beginning has been made by Jesus, including the changes that are yet to be. The fourth thing that's pointed out is that he's unchangeable in a changing universe. In other words, the universe is changing. It will continue to change up to the very end of it. But Jesus is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the fifth thing is he is eternal. Jesus is eternal. But the universe that we now occupy and know will someday be discarded like old clothes. He'll roll it up like a cloth or like a mantle, and he'll, he won't even give it to goodwill. He'll just do away with it. It will be gone. In Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, the apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, prophesies that the universe, as we now know it, is destined to be dissolved in the future. It will pass with fervent heat. It will be gone someday. There'll be a new one, as we read about in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, but there'll be a new one because Jesus, because God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is eternal. Therefore, if you want to be a part of the eternal, have eternal life, then you have to have a relationship with God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. 
All right. Verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? All right. This is a quote from Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus is seated right now at the right hand of the throne of God in glory, co-equal and partner with the Father. The fact that he's seated means that his work is done. Jesus has done everything necessary to save mankind from sin. Jesus has done everything that is necessary to fulfill the accomplishment of the next stages of history as predicted in Scripture in the Old Testament. And so he is just sitting down waiting for God the Father to bring all of this to pass and make the enemies of Jesus a footstool for his feet. He's never said that to a single angel. In fact, it is this issue that caused the devil, Satan, to rebel in the first place. He was Lucifer, the light bearer, the anointed angel, the uh, the special cherubim, the anointed cherub that covered. He was the highest created being ever created. He was all perfect in everything that he had. He had no lack in himself. And that led him to have pride and to think that perhaps he could take God's place. But God is God and angels are created beings, even though they can have great intelligence and great power and great beauty, they are not God. And that's what led to the original sin before the world as we know it was ever created. Now, this leads us then to verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Here we have a picture. Here's Jesus. He is seated. His work is finished. But angels are still busy doing their unfinished work. They have work that is unfinished. It may never be finished. They were created as serving beings. Now, Angels are pictured here as free agents voluntarily working in the employ of another. Again, religious devotion. And who are the good angels, the angels that didn't rebel with Satan, which is two-thirds of them? What is one of their jobs? They serve God, of course. They serve Jesus, of course. They serve the Spirit, of course. But who else do they serve? And it's a rather interesting phrase. They are sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. They are the servants of believers. Now, this is as close as the Bible comes to actually showing that believers have guardian angels. And uh, they're not guardians in the sense that nothing bad will happen to us, but they are guardians in the sense that nothing will happen to us outside of the will of God. They protect us from the capriciousness of Satan. Nothing can touch us except what God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit allow, but particularly what God the Son allows. And so angels have a job to do. That job begins at birth. Jesus says that the guardian angels of little children face the Father. They're there. And the Bible isn't exhaustive, and it's very scarce in what it says about what guardian angels do. But evidently, they have a part in bringing us to salvation through faith in Christ. And they also are the one that carries us to heaven when we die. And Jesus illustrated that in the account that he gave of the death of the rich man and Lazarus. And he said that an angel carried Lazarus to Abraham's bosom, which was the place of comfort in paradise at that particular time. Now it is heaven. 
So angels have a job to do. They watch over us. They're cognizant of our lives. They pay attention to our lives. They protect us from the capriciousness of Satan. They provide safety in the sense that, that nothing will touch our lives outside the will of God. It doesn't mean that we won't be harmed because as you read the New Testament, it is apparent that believers were harmed as you study Christian history from time to time. Believers suffer and some of the sufferings are common with all mankind, but some of the sufferings are because they are believers. And some believers from time to time suffer death itself because they stay true to God and they do not compromise their testimony. But even there, the Bible promises a very special blessing and the grace of God will see us through those times. And there is a special super reward for those who do give that last full measure uh, if they lay down their lives rather than compromise and renounce Jesus in any way or be a discredit to Jesus or God in any way. So this chapter lets us know that it's all been said and done and providing everything we possibly need to make us, first of all, put us in a right relationship with God for our sins to be forgiven. Therefore, we don't have to go outside of faith in Christ, outside of what Scripture teaches us, to find any other resources for us to live an effective and joyful and God-blessed life. We have everything we need. We don't need to go looking somewhere else. It's all been said. It's all been done. Now, our job is to enjoy that great truth and to rest our trust in Jesus and to live life under his leadership and guidance. May God richly bless you.